Hello, my name is Milani, and I um, want to say too, with all due respect to our elected state officials, blah, 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 I want to recognize they have a different job. Um, but in an election year, they seem to be more focused on their re-election or their new election to a new office instead of focusing on the next generation. I have two children in public school, and I just want to urge everyone in the audience to please call for your early ballot and vote for budget override in Landing Unified School District, Sarito, and Mowing Wells. All you have to do is call 730-4330 to Pima County Recorder's Office and vote by early ballot. You don't even have to go to the polling station. There's also special elections, May 18th. We have to pass this temporary tax increase. I know a lot of our elected leaders in the state legislators didn't have the courage to vote for a tax increase themselves. So they're passing it out to the voters, and we have to do this for the next generation. Also encourage you to vote in August primary. Those are very important, and of course, November elections. So please, this is a call to action. We must take Arizona back. This is our home. This is our children's home, too. Thanks. Thank you. Let me just pick up briefly on the theme. I, I, I think um, voting in primaries may be the single most important step many of us can take that we haven't taken in the past. In the primaries, again, it's not just Republican or Democrat, it's, it's across everything. In primaries, the candidates seem to run to the extremes, extreme right, extreme left. And because so few people vote in the primaries, those individuals then represent their party, and because the way districts are drawn, almost every district is a safe district, either for a D or an R. And so the primaries have de facto become where people get elected. So August is a nice time to be on travel, I know, but uh, you really need to get out and, and make your voice, whatever it is, heard in those primaries. because we value education. So when we talk to each other, uh, the conclusion is self-evident. I, well, I believe it. Um, when I talk with legislators, uh, there are some, and unfortunately it's still a small number, that it's very hard to connect on with. Uh, they, they just don't have um, any similarities in philosophy about what makes for a, a great uh, environment, a great society, a great uh, economy. Fortunately, those are smaller in number, and I continue to talk with them. Uh, sometimes we just talk about other things. The real key here, I think, is 
ensuring that, that those people on the extremes, and again, I emphasize on the far right and the far left, those people on extremes don't occupy positions of significant influence. Every state I've been in, and every legislator, legislative body I've worked with, you find people on the extremes. That's Maybe that's the magic of the L-shaped curve. You're always going to find somebody at two sigma, if nobody at three sigma. Okay? The difference is some of the people on the extremes are moving into positions of power. And that's what hurts us. We need to bring more folks in from the ends to the middle so that even if, even if we have disagreements on some details, there's, there's some core values that we all can, can buy into. And uh, I, I worry, I think, the, as, as the previous speaker said, I think the primary elections and the general elections in November are going to be very important. Because remember, we, we've elected these men and women. Thank you. Um, this was uh, one uh, component of a broader effort, in this case by Student Affairs, to figure out how they could continue to deliver the core programming while cutting down on administrative overhead. And, and in, their, in their favor, they touched base with a lot of groups, but they didn't touch base with all the groups. And uh, we overlooked some important factors and considerations. And the good news is, if there's good news to come out of a confrontation, the good news is people uh, felt passionately enough about it and felt free enough about it to come and you know slap me upside the head a little bit. Okay. I've survived. It's okay. Um, because in the end, I think there was a, a unanimity of, of goal here, even if we stumbled a number of times in, in trying to point that. And as a result, we changed course. I mean, that's the whole purpose of dialogue and feedback. In that case, it, it got rather heated, but okay, it was still good feedback. I think what you're seeing is um, a new effectiveness uh, in, in student affairs to serve a lot of the, the communities, even with the significant reduction in budget. So I view that as a significant bump in the road. I don't in any way dismiss it. I think it points out, uh, again, how we now, and maybe always, will have to work a little bit harder to ensure that people who come from different backgrounds, not just different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic, different international backgrounds, get included and feel like their voices are being heard. Some of you heard me say this before. I, I, I believe it, even if sometimes we stumble. When you go into a room and you're going to make decisions, you're going to think about major changes, even minor in policies, it's critical to have in that room people that don't look like you, that don't have your background. Because if I go in a room and everybody's got my background, I'm going to make a really bad decision. Okay? And so you want everybody to kind of wrestle that out. Now this one we wrestled out really vigorously in, in public, but I think it produced the right result in the end. So we work harder. 
there. Um, my name's Kathy. Um, you mentioned some concrete examples of some of the hurts um, that you used in public, like the E. coli outbreak, and they realized that we'd hopefully have more providers or Johnny can't read. Um, so what are some kind of concrete examples you could use if you were trying to educate people on how higher education cuts hurt? And also, what are some ways that all of us can reach out to our current students and the public to educate them on the needs? Because right now it may seem like what happens financially and within the walls here is just a magical, mysterious box of money. So just how do we kind of go about doing that? Yeah, I, I'll give you an example or two, but I think I think the broader point that you bring up is a good one. Um, we need to provide uh, this kind of background, these kinds of examples, maybe on my webpage, other places. So, so if people decide to be uh, spokespersons for the university, they have the factoids, not the blogs, available to them. We're doing quite a bit of that through a group called the Advocates. These are um, business people, uh, sometimes alumni, sometimes parents of, uh, of students here, who are in all the congress, all, all the um, uh, districts in the state, uh, the political districts in the state. Because if, if I'm a uh, representative or a senator of the state, I want to hear from people in my district. There's this group called PAWS, what is that, Chris? Parents and alumni working, and alumni working with students. So we're trying to get this, this set of materials out that people can then pick and choose and decide what, what is meaningful to them. Let me give you um, one example. Earlier I used uh, the, um, the example of universities, 900 million, and prisons, 1 billion. If you eliminate both of those, you still have a billion left to balance the state budget. I used that as a rather outrageous example of what you can't do. Um, there are a lot of data that show that if you don't provide K-12 education, higher education, those people that don't have it available to them wind up not only in much lower economic situations, and if you're, if you're a hard-nosed business person, I mean fewer taxes going into the, the state coffers, but they also statistically just have a harder life. There's more instance of spouse abuse, there's more instance of, of incarceration and reincarceration. And in the end, it costs society so much more to not educate people than it does to educate people. And so I will, I will grab a handful of people that I know have these kinds of examples, these kinds of balance points, and we'll start to put some of those up. Uh, the advocates is a good place to start. My name is Rebecca. Um, Arizona higher education seems to be at a crossroads of priorities, um, creating a knowledge society, meeting industry employment standards, and ensuring access for students. Um, which sort of one of these priorities do you feel the most pressure, and how do you maintain balance? Well, I think they're all wrapped together. Um, I think this is one of these Gordian knots where you, you can't pull one string and say uh, we're only going to have access but we're not going to have quality degrees that then lead you to good paying jobs and a successful life. I mean, someone said the other day, oh, how come you can't generate more degrees? <laughs> I can generate a lot of degrees in a hurry, you know, excuse me faculty, but give me a bunch of certificates, I'll sign them and boom, you got a degree, but then that devalues everything and that's not what anyone wants. I think not only 
your premise is correct, but not only is, is um, education at a crossroads in Arizona, I think this university is at a crossroads. It doesn't take long to destroy quality. You've probably all seen examples of it in your own life. I've seen highly successful departments that for various reasons, and not here, I emphasize, just self-destructed, and 10, 15 years later, they're mediocre. They don't have any raison d'etre. We are at a crossroads now where we have to decide, and I emphasize it's we. We have to decide as students, as faculty, as staff, as regents, thank you Regent Gimther for being here, as regents, whether we are going to allow this university, this extraordinary university that the people here have built. I mean, it, people in the state have no inkling of how great this university is, and that's my fault, and I'm trying to get out and tell a story, but you know, first in physical sciences, the, the, the kind of contributions we make, the new VETS program where we're bringing veterans here and supporting them so they can get work with their programs in every discipline where this university contributes to this state and this nation. We can lose that in a two or three year period. And I'm not an alarmist, I'm an optimist, I'm a very practical person, I'm a very cautious budget person. We could lose that. If we don't find ways to support this university, to backfill what this state has taken away, whether through good reason or bad, it's gone. That don't kid yourself, that hundred million is not coming back. Come FY12, I don't care if this housing market goes through the roof here, it's not coming back. Even in the good years, this university took budget cuts. Now of that hundred million, we have committed and we're well on our way to cutting out 40 million. That's 10%, that's a big cut. We're eliminating that. We're doing it because a lot of people are working hard. But that leaves 60 million that over two years we've got to backfill so we can be ready for the FY12, whatever it brings. And if we aren't ready for FY12, forget about it. We, you're going to see an exodus of quality from this university like you've never seen before, and it won't come back in my lifetime. Hopefully it'll come back in the student's lifetime. This is a turning point for this institution, and we collectively have to figure out what to do about it, because the state legislature and the governor either don't have the will to do it, or they don't have the financial ability to do it. And again, there are many allies in the legislature, and I, I can't emphasize strong enough, the governor has been very strong in supporting education to the degree she can, considering the groups that she's dealing with. So, you know, I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but I've, I've done this analysis 23 different ways. I've watched it coming. We've looked at our transformation plans. We've got a budget redesign. We're doing everything we can to be more efficient. We're already among the most efficient research universities in the nation. Our, of our 15 peers, we're the most efficient. Okay. People are working longer, people are working harder. I hate that phrase, work smarter, not harder. Yeah, work harder. Okay. But if we don't get it resolved in this cycle and the next cycle combined, this institution will be a very different university five and ten years from now. Um, I think throughout this series we've been hearing a lot of doom and gloom. And I think it's very easy as employees, students, and faculty to feel victimized 
by the state budgets and have very and not feel very empowered to, to create a lot of change. Um, but we also know that there's a lot of innovation and creativity that occurs in the midst of lack of resources. And often what we do, there's no dollar attached to them. Uh, what have you witnessed, or as an institutional leader, uh, suggestions that you may have for us to not feel so paralyzed by uh, cuts? Yeah, let me end on a note that I feel at my core. As I said, I'm an optimist. Okay. First of all, this institution is worth fighting for. This is a phenomenal collection of individuals that make up the University of Arizona. And the optimistic part really is based on those people. When you look around and you see the kind of creativity that our faculty, students, and staff have in winning extramural awards, in creating programs, the advanced program to bring more women into science and engineering, in programs that relate to the downtown in Tucson. Look, look at the mortar board cleanup every spring that undergraduate students get involved in to help neighborhoods that are adjacent to the university. These success stories are repeated over and over and over again. And they exist because of the people here and they exist because of their commitment to build a better state, region, nation, whatever you want. So the optimism is based on the quality of individuals we have here. It's based on the amazing diversity that we have here. The fact that we are leading the nation in understanding how a diverse society is a productive, powerful society. People have said, you know, you've got an international border. There's some problems there. Sure, there's some problems there, but the good news is we have an international border. And we can relate. We can be ahead of the rest of society when it comes to giving our students opportunities for internationals. So I, I, I worry, my top worry, I worry about the short-term numbers. I worry about the medium and long-term philosophical orientation that's coming from some of our leaders in this state. But my optimism derives from the fact that this institution has so much value in its people. And that translates into programs, and you all are part of one or more of them, programs that go out and make major, major contributions to our society. So come back to the people. That's what we want. And the people in this room, talk to all of your friends and make sure that they vote, make sure that their voices are heard. So thank you very much. I really appreciate the chance, Mary. Professor Lee, thank you very much for having me, and it was an honor to be here and especially to follow uh, Regent Calderon. Thank you very much.